few years back, I remember going to India, and this time it wasn't just to their headquarters. We were at this large conference back in 2010 where there were kind of like uh, all the churches and representatives. There were like 50,000, 60,000 people there. It's kind of crazy, uh, all packed in together, this small little town. And I did have a chance to actually, I was asked to speak on one of the morning sessions where most of the pastors were away in the meetings and so on and so forth, and uh, a lot of the women were there. So as I was just reflecting and praying, God gave me a passage in Ephesians talking about uh, how God cares about women and the, what the, 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 the home situation is supposed to be like across the husband and wife context. So I was preaching and, you know, I was, I was doing my thing. I kept it short and I, I shared my, my, my spiel you know, uh, from Ephesians 5.21, how we are all called to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ and husbands are called to love their wives. And... Afterwards, I'm like, okay, I did my thing, and let's just pray. As we're praying, I kind of peeked, and I saw a whole bunch of men really angry at me. They're like, oh, the faces were like, how dare he say that? And all a bunch of women crying out, wailing, because they experienced incredible oppression. These are Christian homes. And I thought to myself, I got to get out of here. <laughs> I got to run. Uh, but I thought to myself, wow. A simple message about husbands love your wives was so radical. It caused such a response. Um, that in fact, this pain, this strife, almost a war between the genders, goes back all the way to the fall. And God is still working in our cultures, in our churches, in our families, to actually redirect and reform what it looks like to treat the person who is an opposite gender. In our culture, we're struggling beyond simply just husband, wife, male, female. We're wrestling with issues of gender. What does it mean to be male? What does it mean to be female? Can you cross those gender boundaries? What does it look like? I'm not, I can't talk too much about it now, but I can say that this is such a, a function of our brokenness. We don't know how to stay in our gender. We don't know how to approach somebody from a different gender with freedom, with care and, and love in such a way that, that we bring healing instead of pain and oppression. Some of us actually grew up in families where there wasn't, on the outside it might look really healthy, but there wasn't a deep sense of partnership, a deep sense of love across that gender divide. And I'm realizing that uh, this message still applies to all of us. This reality is sometimes we feel like if, if, if you raise the other gender up, you're going to go down. And so you have to step on the other to, to, to go up. Um, this gender problem shows up uh, not only in private, but actually shows up in public as well. I don't know if you've ever been at a, a meal and, uh, and the frustration boils up and whether it's the husband or the wife makes a very biting comment, right? A very snippy comment. And you can tell, oh, there's stuff underneath that's coming up. It shows up in public. Today, we're going to look at a passage where it is boiling up in the community in Ephesus. And Paul is going to speak to Timothy about this issue, about what does it mean to worship God as a woman and how to do it in a way that honors God, and how, does it, how are men supposed to worship God? There is this correction in, in, in terms of our engendered expressions of worship that we're going to look at today. And with the intention that as we walk through this very complex text, hopefully we come away with what should this look like? What can it look like? 
what does the body of Christ, how do we move across the genders in such a way where we are empowering each other instead of just stepping on each other? We are in the midst of a series in 1 Timothy, and in this series, we're just going to walk through verse by verse, passage by passage. So you'll get a whole sense of what 1 Timothy is about. A little extra biblical information, a, fewer, a little fewer uh, illustrations, if that's okay. But the, the, the sense is that if we pay good attention to these things, which sometimes we don't in our culture, very few people pe- preach on this uh, carefully, but if we do, the core aspect of our life in Christ and our life together will be so strengthened. I use the language of core training where instead of building up your biceps, you're working on the core, the, the muscles and the ligaments that actually connect your body, upper body and lower body. And that gives you flexibility. That gives you strength to really move and to live well. And that's where we should be working on. Well, we're in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we're going to talk about gender issues. Kathy, as you were reading those passages, it's almost like it was hard coming out of your mouth. I noticed. It's like, oh, I can't believe this is in the Bible. What am I supposed to do with this? And uh, most preachers run away from this, or they preach it in such a way that it's like, women, shut up, don't teach, right? We're going to actually take a very close look, and hopefully um, by, you know, by the end we'll, we'll get something that we can hold on to. I do need to say that I need your patience because, number one, this is complex stuff. This is not simply whatever's on the page, you read it as such. There is a complexity, um, but at the same time, the way that we're going to get through is we're going to look at context. Okay? Uh, if you're paying attention to something very important, when somebody said something, you can't just get the gist of it through 144 characters. You can't get it through just a little simple post. You need to understand what's happening in the context. And that gives you much better sense. This is true with people, too. Sometimes you look at somebody and they're like, what's wrong with that guy? And what's wrong with you know, that, that woman? And you, you, get, you get to hear their story and you go, oh, wow. The fact that they're even put together, okay, that's an amazing thing. Uh, we can judge all too quickly if we don't pay attention to context. So um, we're gonna, that's what we're going to do. We're going to realize it's complex. There's going to be context here. And we also want to have some grace because this passage is very inflammatory for some. And some actually do have come down after really processed, come out of a position uh, that might be different from what you might have or what I might have. But that's okay. Um, we're trying to be very faithful to the text and asking God to help us in that. Well, the people that were addressing the church in Ephesus at this time, they were having this, uh, as we're going to find out, this kind of brokenness in their reflection of gender and how they live it out. Okay? The women who were so pressed for so, so long, told that wives are only there, okay, that we have quotes, wives are, so there's one guy quoting, like, you know, we have, we have, uh, we have special concubines for special days. We have wives for our childbearing, and we have the slaves, for servant girls for our daily needs. That's how women were treated in many extents. And so they were oppressed for so, so long. And something was happening both in the culture at the time, but also in the church, that the women were experiencing some freedom. And in that freedom, it was kind of going a little crazy. I liken it to when you are a high schooler living, up in, a, living in a very tightly controlled home, like my home was. You know, my parents gave me a curfew of midnight till I was 26 years old, right? That's kind of crazy, isn't it? Uh, um, and when you go to college and there's no parent looking at you telling you what to do, freedom! And you explore, you do anything, you, you just go nutso. That's kind of what was happening in this context, both in Rome but also in Ephesus. 
Well, we find that this gender turmoil was happening where women were kind of coming out of this sense of oppression in the church especially, okay? If you think about it, the church would be uh, not a place where you would expect women to just flamboyantly express themselves powerfully. Well, especially in, in this kind of patriarchal cultures. But we're finding that there's a reason why the women in the church are really, really excited. Because in Christ, they were experiencing such freedom. Imagine you're a woman and you've, the whole life your, your dad told you, you have to be like this, you have to do this. And your husband forces you into these little, little boundaries and these little roles. And you come to church. Spirit comes on you and you begin to prophesy. Your God is speaking through you. You get baptized, and over you, the pastor says, now there is no more Jew or Gentile. In other words, there's no more outsider-insider, less valuable, more valuable. They're all part of God's family. There is no more male or female. Okay, That's, that's in the baptismal formula in Galatians chapter 28. There's no more male or female. No longer is you being female a lesser thing. Can you imagine, like, what, what? The first time being able to Stand up and prophesy in God's name and so on and so forth in the setting where at home or in other settings you're just squashed down. You can't talk. Well, guess what happened? In the midst of that freedom, people went nuts. Um, we find it not only in the church in Ephesus, but also in the church in Corinth where there's this huge argument over head coverings. I know we don't have head coverings. Anybody have any hats on? Right? Nobody, no ladies have? Yes, that's fine. Yeah. In this passage... Uh, men are not supposed to have head coverings, and that's why when you go to some churches, they're like, take your head off. That's disrespectful. That's from this passage, by the way. And women are supposed to. There's supposed to be a difference between, and there's a huge issue because the women are demanding, I am not under the authority of my husband. I can do whatever I want. If I don't want to wear a head covering, I'm not going to wear a head covering, right? And Paul has to restore some of that. So you get a sense that this is going on in this context. This is context for us, Okay. Last week, we finished up with a passage, uh, verse 8, where it says, Therefore, this is Paul talking to the church in Ephesus about men. I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. When they were gathering for worship, everything that was inside them, the noise and the frustration was, was coming out through anger and through fighting. Okay? Can you imagine as we're worshiping, somebody, people are going to fisticuffs right, in church? Because right? they were lifting up holy hands, not in, in prayer. And so he has to address... Men, in their own gendered expression of worship, it shouldn't be this way. There should be a quietness, a willingness to learn and to honor God versus a machismo going up after each other. Okay? This is the posture of somebody who's praying, by the way. Isn't that, isn't that great? We were doing that a little earlier today, right? Well, then he moves to the ladies. Now, Paul is not just picking on the ladies, all right? Just, just for you to get a sense of this. Whenever Paul talks to male and female, he actually talks to male and female. Even if the main issue is not one or the other. It's in the book of Ephesians. He starts off talking to the ladies, but he spends a very short time, and the rest of the time, all those words talking about the men, because the men were not loving their wives. Here, he addresses the, lady, the men and tries to correct them, but the main issue here is kind of something that's happening in the gendered expression of the ladies. So Paul is not an enemy of the woman. And as you read this, it's going to be really hard to swallow. Just give me a chance to unpack it a little. Okay, don't crucify me yet, right? Don't crucify me yet. Because um, uh, in many ways, it was very poorly, in my understanding, uh, in my humble opinion, it was very uh, poorly taught early on, even when I grew up. Paul starts off by saying, I want the men to do this. I and mean, the women to, uh, 
dress modestly with decency, propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. Okay? So when I was growing up, my sister was told, no, 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 you can't show bling. You have to come like, you know, decent. And this is actually a, a, a very kind of um, humble approach to this passage. Women should not come all decked out to the nines, you know, showing all of their bling and, you know, coming with expensive, expensive things. Uh, not just so that you make the person who is not that rich feel bad, but actually there's something going on here. When we pay attention to his key words, this elaborate hair stuff, the gold or pearls, back then they didn't have diamonds, they didn't care about it. pearls were the diamonds, right? Expensive clothes. This is what women would do in that culture in that time when they were basically saying, I am not holding on to my marriage, okay? They're going to the club and they're all decked out in such a way to say, look at me. If a man saw, his, if a husband saw his wife out in public with elaborate hairstyles, gold or pearls, or expensive clothes, we have actually stories of this, that would be a case for marital unfaithfulness. The husband would be like, why are you going to the club dressed like that? You're going there with a purpose, right? You don't care about our relationship. You're not under, you're not staying in this relationship. So the ladies of the church, most likely the younger ones, were coming to church dressed like that. In that culture, elaborate hairstyles, gold pearls, or expensive clothes means I'm a prostitute and I'm looking for something. Can you imagine somebody coming to church like this, right? Whoa, it's like, excuse me, you know, what, what, are, are you here? Now, uh, I've, I've been in situations like this, and sometimes it's just that's the way they dress, and that's okay, it's, it's misunderstood. But sometimes, can you imagine somebody who actually dressed as, a, as with a purpose comes like that? Um, that's what was going on. So Paul is not saying, okay, ladies, you must be dressed like this. Sorry, you must be dressed like this. <laughs> He's not saying, you must be dressed like this. Frumpy, right? Okay, don't wear anything expensive. It's got to be like $10 jeans, okay? Any jewelry, take it off. You have to look ugly. You have to look like this. He's not saying that. He's saying, let your dress reveal and give, give it, let your externals allow you to see what's really important, your internals, okay? Let the people of the world see that you're not just about what you have or you're not after these things, okay? That if, let them see instead the good deeds, your life, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. So they were professing to worship God, but they were dressed as if they wanted something else. And they were doing this at church. So, sorry, if you come that way, your pastor will lovingly say, okay, watch what you're dressing. Not because we're trying to put some, you know, I'm trying to ma not mansplain your, your, your dress code, but actually saying, what does it look like to let your life be brilliant? more than just your clothes or what you have, your handbag and so on and so forth. This is not just an attack on women. It's, if men do this, it's the same. If men come with their you know, flashy watches and, you know, or come in such a way that, that everything they're putting their attention toward wanting to attract others for something that's not uh, healthy or good. All of that language, by the way, of elaborate hairstyle, it is, it is, a, is, is, is actually saying, um, describing you know, sexual misdeeds. That's, that's the whole setting that Paul's addressing. Right? So this is not just Paul, by the way. If you look at Peter, this is a problem that Peter was having in the churches in Galatia. Right? He says, to the women who have husbands who are not believers, you shouldn't convince them with what you're wearing. 
but you convince them with who you are, your inner self. He says, your beauty should not come from an outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Did you hear see that? Okay, hairstyle, gold, gold and pearls, fine clothes. Those three are the markings of a whole kind of woman who actually is, is, is looking for certain things and is only expressing it through the outer, outer attire. He's saying, rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Quiet spirit is not somebody who's mousy and never says anything and lets her, let herself get walked over. It's somebody who knows they are loved by God. They don't have to build their worth by attracting it from other people. They have it. There's an inner beauty that just glows. And that is of great worth to God. And so pay attention to that gentle and quiet spirit. It's what we talked about last week, that Paul is asking everybody, men and women, to have. But here, it's the women who are noisy. They're making noise, and it's their dress. The way that they're dressing is actually uh, grabbing attention. Continuing on, we find that he's not only talking about how they're dressing, but how they're interacting in worship. It says, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. This is tough, right? Just give me, give me, give me a second to unpack this a bit. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet, okay? What's the first thing you think of? Oh, man, Paul is just, just telling women, oh, everybody to shut up, that women's voice is not valid. And so, you know, <laughs> uh, I have a wife at home plus daughters and a sister, and I, I can tell you, um, uh, well, uh, I've been in certain situations where women actually were told, <laughs> they were told, sit down. A woman's place is in the kitchen. I was actually at a church, and um, I was preaching Ephesians 21 again. I get in trouble for that. Uh, and the, the, not the senior pastor, but the, the, the lieutenant pastor, number two, um, there's, there, was, there was a lot of pastors in that church, 14 pastors, and I was number 14. Number two, <laughs> and sat me down. And in his, in, his, in his wanting to correct me, he's like, I hear you've been doing dishes and you're telling people. It's like, yeah, my wife's working, you know, and she's with kids and, yeah, and I'll, I'll do dishes, you know. It's like, no, 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 no. Husband, not places, not in kitchen, right? Yeah. And he was serious. I was like, are you serious? Like, he was serious. Like, there was, I was being brought to correction. <laughs> no dishes. I'm like, what? So I got theological on him. I said, but you know, Jesus, he washed his disciples' feet. Can't I wash dishes? And he says, no, that's different. <laughs> Maybe you've been in cultures like that, where it's the male authority that tells the woman, just blanket, universal for all time, be quiet, be in full submission. And that might set you off. And that's okay, because that's describing how, even in the church, the church has really failed to, to do this right. But Jesus was not like that. He was not like that over men, and he was not like that over women. He did not give us that description of what authority is. I have authority, therefore you must shut up and just listen to me and do what I tell you. That's not his description of authority. In fact, Jesus says, when he's talking to his disciples who want to climb over each other to get to the top, he says, Jesus called together and said, you know what the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over everybody else? And their high officials exercise authority over them. This shall not be for you. This is not just talking about male over male. 
It's talking about male and female. Well, here's the problem. It's not just the men who have this issue with authority, wanting it and stepping over other people, telling other people to be quiet instead of having a quiet heart. It's the women here now who are just so, have so pent up are now going on the opposite end. And they're demanding authority. They're standing up and they're saying, no, 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 you shut up. Uh-huh, right? They're, they're the ones who are demanding to say, I know what's true. You have to listen to me now. I've heard, <laughs> thank you. I've heard of a new phrase, alpha female. Have you heard that before? Alpha female? Yes. <laughs> thank you for the support, by the way. Alpha female. Some woman who actually says, men have screwed it up and we're going to take charge now. And sometimes, it's, you know, there's a lot of truth to that in some ways. But that motive of saying, I'm going to be the alpha male, everybody shut up, or I'm going to be the alpha female, everybody shut up. That's just two sides of the same picture, lording it over, demanding to have authority over. So the picture we get is that the women in this, in this setting are teaching and living out a kind of relational um, co context that actually they're demanding authority. They're the ones who's, who are saying, we didn't screw up, you screwed up. We're not the sinners, you're the sinners. You have to listen to us. The content and the heart from which they were teaching was twisted. And that's why Paul has to say, no, 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 no. If you're going to teach that stuff, you're going to live that stuff, you don't know what Christ is about. Stop it. So he has to explain to them, yes, Adam was formed first, then Eve. Okay? Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived who became a sinner. Okay? Some people read this, and they read it in such a way as to say, Ah, see, women, Adam was made first, and therefore, women, you have to listen to Adam because Adam was made first. And the reason why women should not teach, this is how they read it, I don't read it that way, but that's how they read it, is because Eve was deceived, and it's so like a woman to be deceived. And you don't want somebody who's deceived teaching other people, therefore, because women are prone to be deceived, they should not be teachers. It is a very twisted, messed up teaching, but it, I've heard it, I've heard it before. I love it when there's a satirical comeback, right? right? About how you know, men are just built up to be great you know, leaders just because of their makeup. And women, they're just not strong enough. And women, they're just not focused enough. Women, they're just too emotional. I love the comebacks, okay? It's kind of like, here's a comeback. Men are too emotional to be priests or pastors. Go to a March Madness game and tell me if I'm wrong, right? Men, women, men find all kinds of reasons why cultural reasons, and they couch it in biblical language to say, women can't lead because they're easily deceived. Women can't lead because they're emotional. Women can't lead because they're busy at home. Women can't lead. Well, actually, this is a way for us to unpack what are our cultural biases versus what's in scripture, okay? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of uh, follow up on this. This lady from um, Gay Wallace from the Junior Project, she gives 10 reasons why men should not be pastors, 10 reasons why men shouldn't lead and women should lead. Okay? This is facetious, okay? this is, but it's actually pointing out these are the same exact lines of reasoning why women are told they can't lead, they can't teach, they can't be pastors. Okay? Because a man's place is in the army. <laughs> Woman's place is in the kitchen? Well, a man's place is in the army. Send them there, right? Number nine. For men who have children, their duties might distract them from being responsibilities of a parent. So men who are parents shouldn't lead because they'll get distracted too. That's used against a woman. Number eight, their physical build, men's physical build, indicates that men are more suited to tasks like chopping down trees and wrestling mountain lions. It would be unnatural for them to do other works, forms of work. Men use that against women. Oh, they're physically weaker, so they're just, it's unnatural for them to do the tough stuff of work. 
7. Man was created before woman. Remember you heard that? Man, uh, Eve was created first. <laughs> it is therefore obvious that man was a prototype. Thus they represent an experiment rather than the crowning achievement of creation. <laughs> it's really funny how your biases can, can twist. That's what's there, right? Number six. Men are too emotional. We, we saw this one you know, about, about football games. Number five. Some men are handsome. They will distract women worshipers. That's used to describe of women who are very beautiful and they're preaching and like, oh, you cause men to lust and so they can't be leaders, right? right? Luckily, you don't have that problem. There we go. Number four, to be ordained pastors to nurture the congregation, but this is not a traditional male role. Rather, throughout history, women have been considered to be not only more skilled than men at nurturing, but also more frequently attracted to it. They like it and they do better. So that makes them the obvious choice for an ordination. That actually makes kind of some sense. Yeah. Number three, Men are overly prone to violence. No manly man wants to settle disputes by any means other than fighting about it. Therefore, they're poor role models, and as such, being dangerously unsta unstable in positions of leadership. Number two, men can still be involved in church activities even without being ordained. They can sweep paths, repair the church roof, and maybe even lead the singing on Father's Day. But, you know, confining themselves to such traditional male roles, they can still be vitally important to the life of the church. That's what's told to ladies, by the way. You can do important stuff, just not the important stuff, right? And lastly, I cracked up when I saw this. In the New Testament account, a person who betrayed Jesus was a man! <laughs> Thus his lack of faith in ensuing punishment stands as a symbol of the, of the subordinated position that all men should take. That's used of Eve. Eve was deceived. Therefore, she's never, no woman's ever to be trusted with leadership. Well, this, no, this is Paul saying this is a correction. Adam was made first. Women are not independent of men. Okay? In 1 Corinthians, that's actually what he says again. But then he says, by the way, men, watch out. Where did you come from? Who made you? A woman. You have a mother, right? You're independent, right? Um, he's always trying to say, if you push yourself up to be important and step everybody down, then you need correction, um, whether it's a male or female. All right? Well, women in leadership, women called to teach, that's a very contentious thing. But for our denomination, just for you to know, our Evangelical Covenant Church, we have a, have a very strong affirmation of women leading, a strong affirmation of women doing every aspect of ministry and of life. Um, and it's come from a deep working through the scriptures. I remember when I was doing this in seminary, I came across all these names, and one of the guys actually ended up being a professor at the, the flagship theological school of, of our denomination way before we joined in. And I was so amazed at the careful work that, the, that these scholars have done to pay attention to the text. And so we've got some thoughtful, very uh, God-honoring people who actually have said, in our denomination, we really believe in affirming women. In fact, there's a thing called Product Deborah, because even though we say we really believe it, some of the churches, we don't have that full expression. The culture in our country, as well as our church, is not quite there. You know, in our country, Women who do the exact same work, they get like 75% or even less of the pay, okay? In our country, there's still not a president who's a woman. Look at other cultures like India, they've had presidents who are women. But, you know, as equality-oriented that we are, we still have issues both in our culture and in our churches. Well, let me dovetail back to our, our passage and find that there's a reason why he's pointing out this deceived stuff. It's not just saying that women are prone to be deceived. He's actually correcting them, saying, 
what they were believing and how they were exercising their, their, their womanhood in worship and in leadership, it was a reflection of false teaching, okay? A reflection that they were being deceived, all right? Well, you see that? Deceived keeps coming up. Fast forward to 1 Timothy 4.1. And uh, same book, by the way. Paul says, The Spirit clearly says in later times some will abandon the faith. Their life in Christ actually has, 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 has they've split off because they've trusted and followed in deceiving spirits. Things taught by demons. This is de- demonic doctrine. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared with a hot iron. So they're saying these things and they're deceiving women to actually believe them. What are they saying? They say for, they're forbidding people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. So the picture that we're getting here is that women are being, following this deceptive teaching and they're refusing to get married, refusing to have children so that they can go off and they can live a different life. Now, if you were in that time and you had children, and, you, and, and our moms know this, and sometimes our fathers know this too, uh, young children, if you've got children after children, they take every ounce. You don't have energy to put on fine clothes. You're just exhausted, right? You're stuck to hearth and home. So women, realizing that they will never be able to express themselves, never be able to go and be an alpha female unless they stop having children. That's what they were teaching, forbidding people to marry. So instead of getting married, they were, they were going out dressed like prostitutes and are attracting men, and they're coming to the church with that idea. This is what it means to be a free woman in Christ. This is how messed up it is, okay? So that's the picture that we're getting, all right? So later on, in the same book, chapter, uh, 1 Timothy 5, 14, he says, Paul says, I counsel yo- younger widows to marry and to have children, okay? To manage their homes and give the enemy no opportunity for slander. This is important because what's going on is they're believing this false teaching and they're living it out by refusing to get married and have children so they can actually live out a different kind of lifestyle, okay? This makes sense of what Paul's going to say in our passage, that part about women being saved through childbirth, right? Because what is he saying here? No, the path to a life, a healthy life, gender expression life, is to stay through the path of marriage and childbearing. doesn't mean that you have to all be uh, married, because Paul himself in other passages says, it's great to be single, but it's not good to be not married, not have children, and actually live out this lifestyle. This makes a lot of sense, okay? That's what they're doing. That's the historical context. That's why Paul says women will be saved through childbearing. Now, I've heard uh, pastors basically, you know, they come back at me and they say, oh, it's too complex. You're just twisting everything around. You're just using a lot of information to confuse people. Just read the text. I do not let a woman teach or have authority over men, okay? Do you believe in the Bible? It's like, I believe in the Bible. So then why don't you believe in that? So then I say, well, what does verse 15 say? Do you believe in the Bible? A woman must, was going to be saved through childbearing? That means any woman who's barren is going to hell, right? Anybody, any woman who dies before bearing a child, early death is going to hell? What? That means every woman who bears a child is going to heaven? You can't read it absolutely that literal, or you get funky answers. I don't let a woman teach, but women should do charitably, then they go to heaven. That's a strange teaching, right? No. What does it look like for somebody to stay in this interdependent, mutual submission relationship in family, in the church, across the genders? If they continue on in faith, love, and holiness, 
guess what? It looks like a, a life where you're interacting with the other gender in love and submission, not exercising authority over them. So he's correcting them, saying, the reason why I'm telling you to stay in childhood is because that's the false teaching. They're rejecting family, they're rejecting all this so they can live out their own lives um, loose from the gospel. So what do we do with this? We have an idea of what's happening in, the, in that culture. How do we apply it to ours? How do we make sense of, okay, he says here, I do not permit a woman to teach. But that was that context. We have to read carefully. So there are some things, when we talked about this passage and these texts, are, they're letters. You have to read them in such a way to make sense of it and then draw it to you in our time, in our setting. So for example, Paul will tell Timothy stuff like, fight the good fight of faith. That's pretty applicable to everybody, right? Because faith is, is a fight. It's, we, have to, we have to train ourselves. We have to live ourselves. These are very applicable to not only Timothy, but to Ephesus and to us directly, right? But there are some commands in Scripture that Paul gives to Timothy, which makes it very hard for us to literally follow. For example, 2 Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, bring my winter coat, okay? Bring my coat because winter's coming and some extra scrolls. If we took scripture literally, directly each time, we'd be struggling to find the, the Apostle Paul back in the first century and to bring his cloak and his scrolls, right? We can't apply every single comment without context directly, okay? Here, there is a clear demand, clear command to the women who are teaching false content and from a, from a heart that is really messed up, that needs, that needs restoration. And so he has to correct them. But in our setting, how do we deal with who has authority in our, in our church settings? Do we basically apply this to all women and say, no, you can't teach? Well, there are two general you know, approaches. One's called complementarian. That means men basically say, well, if you look back at the Old Testament, yes, Adam was created first. Yes, there were only male priests. Yes, even in the New Testament, Jesus only had male disciples. Leadership is reserved for men. Um, they're not trying to say women are less. They're just saying, this is the way it works. There's a complementary role. We're equal, but men lead. That's how they understand it to be. And there are others who say, no, we're equal in all ways. Women can lead as well and at every uh, level and function as men can. And there are people who come down on, a, on different sides of this in different measures. What I want to leave you with is, if we pay attention to how Paul is addressing the gender divide and issues all throughout, in the same way Jesus is providing an example of how we do this across genders, we find there's two principles that's going to help us. Okay? Number one, when we ask the question, who's the boss? Who gets to lead? Who gets to decide whether it's in our families or in our church? These are the answers, okay? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Who's the boss? Christ is the boss. So what does it mean to lead? It's actually to submit to another. Wives submitting to their husbands as to Christ, and husbands submitting to their wives as Christ did, even submitting their bodies to the flames if necessary. It is this deep, Giving up of your life for the sake of another. 
Isn't that what Christ did for the bride of Christ? He gave up his rights. He didn't grasp it saying, mine, to step on other people. He, he was stepped on. He was pierced. And uh, he was obedient to the, Christ, to the cross. That Christ shows up what a, a submitting looks like. I want us to think about that when you're thinking about who gets to lead in the home, who gets to lead in the church, who's the boss. You sh you, we live out not this exercising authority over, but actually submitting to each other, to each other's needs, submitting to each other, uh, even putting our, our lives uh, on the line for another, our friends. The second thing, who's the boss? It's not, I don't need you, I'm going to do it on my own. It's, as in 1 Corinthians, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. This mutual submission and this interdependence, this is how we build our culture and our life together. It's how we build our families. Even when we've seen kind of a brokenness, even in the church, we get to say, God forgive us, and we get to do it differently. I'm gonna have you call, I'm gonna call you to prayer. We spend a little time. And I want you to think about this. There was a lot of information here. I had to, I had to unpack quite a bit. But the point here is, there's still such a mess when it comes to the gender relationships 